Good morning. Please open your Bibles with me to Zephaniah 3.14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you shall never again fear evil. For on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord, is, the Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will, rejoice, he will rejoice over you with gladness, and he will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, at, that, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before the eyes, says the Lord. Well, we're in Zephaniah this morning. Like I said, I hope you'll keep your Bibles open with me as we work our way through these three chapters together. Next week is the conclusion of this book of 12, as we conclude next week with Malachi. It's been a sweet thing in this last decade of, of church planting to be able to walk through multiple sermon series, and as we've done so, to see God shape us by these sections of his word, these markers in which he, he's worked in his church. And I think he's doing that this morning, working these, this book of 12 into us, that, that there's a mark on the church by the spirit and the word. This morning, as we begin our time in Zephaniah, I thought we should take a moment of orientation, as we often have in these books, to get an orientation to the kings that, leading, that are leading up to Zephaniah, as well as some of the idolatry that had been taking place in the years leading up to it. Verse 1 of Zephaniah begins like this, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, okay? And it came to Zephaniah, who is the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. So right away, the Zephaniah, the author, the prophet who brings this word of God to this people is situating this prophecy in history, like his own history. He's the son of some people. Zephaniah is written before the exile, but following, uh, and following a period of severe turmoil and decline. So before the exile of Babylon, and into Babylon, you know, think Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar and all of that, right? It's before that, but it's following a period of turmoil and decline. For three quarters of a century, there has been a political decline under the kings of Ahaz, and actually, again, even under the good king, Hezekiah. Hezekiah did falteringly pursue the worship of the Lord, but the, the people experienced a, a great deal of decline. Ahaz was a wicked king. But both Ahaz and Hezekiah followed a general policy that pursued a, a sort of self-serving subservience to 
uh, to Assyria. This was never God's design for his people, that they would be subservient to some far-off empire. They belong to him. They're to be subservient to him if they're subservient to anyone. And tell, let me tell you, to be a servant of the Lord is the sweetest place to take in a house. They were never supposed to be servants of Assyria. Ahaz and Hezekiah were then followed by Hezekiah's son, Manasseh. Now, by the time we get to Manasseh, his reign was thick with wicked idolatry and moral evil. So we don't just have sort of a a political decline and, and shrinking under the shadow of Assyria. We have wicked idolatry and moral evil. Now, following Manasseh, there was a brief two-year reign under Amon, who was, the little, who was little better than Manasseh. And then, after that brief little two-year reign, following that horrid, wicked reign of Manasseh, we have the crowning of an eight-year-old king. An eight-year-old king. His name was Josiah. Now, surrounding the time of Josiah's coronation, the Assyrian Empire began to decline due to a failure of leadership. And we've seen that in other passages. It's not just a failure of leadership, was it? It was actually the judgment of the Lord upon Assyria. Their decline was spectacular when it finally came so that they were obliterated from the face of the earth. And this is sort of happening right around the coming of this young boy king, Josiah. Josiah, as he grew in age and authority to the ripe, wise age of 12, began to implement a number of reforms. You guys caught that, right? This dude's 12, and he's bringing about reforms in the kingdom. Look how it happened. In 2 Chronicles Chronicles chapter 34, verse 3, it says this. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he, that is Josiah, began to seek the God of David, his father. Friends, that little phrase sets the trajectory of Josiah's reign. Josiah's reign is not marked by great wisdom and riches like you might mark the reign of Solomon or something like that. His reign is marked more like the, his namesake here, the, the David, his father, right? His, the, 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 he is the descendant of David, and he begins to trust in the Lord like David trusted in the Lord. And then, you know, four years later, when he's all of 12, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, of the ashram, the carved and metal images. So we have an eight-year-old king who's just sort of taking his place, and really the land began, was reigned by maybe some wise advisors around him, and there was some movement toward political health in the kingdom after the degradation of Manasseh. But by the time this young king, Josiah, is 12 years old, he begins to enact some reforms. Some examples of these that that would come a a bit later is ultimately they would find the book of the law and begin to enact a number of radical reforms. They'd lost the law. They'd lost the word. 
in the midst of all of the evil and wickedness of Manasseh. They'd lost access to, to what it is to follow after the Lord. And after they find the law, Josiah begins to enact a number of radical reforms that included the repair of the neglected, broken down, and highly syncretized temple so that it would become devoted to the worship of the Lord again and become a place that was really the center of the cultural life of the people. This was the reforms of Josiah. Specifically, what he was leading them to was covenant renewal that would culminate in the first keeping of the Passover since the time of the judges. That's the great festival of the people to remember their salvation enacted by God and the sacrifice of a lamb so that they might be rescued from slavery and brought out to become God's precious people. And they hadn't celebrated it for decades and perhaps centuries. And here they are now, for the first time, celebrating a covenant renewal. Now, while Josiah was implementing reforms from his position as ruler of the nation, right, that's his role, to implement reforms as a king, there is some question as to how well the people and the the other leaders of the land really were following these reforms. Now, they were implementing the reforms, Right? They were cleaning the temple, and they were cleaning up the behaviors of the politics of the land and the religion of the land. There was certain external submission to the demands of the reforms, and there's significant evidence even of rejoicing in the good that these reforms would bring upon the nation. I mean, the, the way of the Lord is good. And when the way of the Lord is pursued, we should not be surprised among a whole people and a whole nation that there would be something good, a sweetness in the land. And there's a great deal of evidence that there was rejoicing. But the question is, what effect did the reforms have upon the actual faith of the people? Were they enjoying the benefits of doing good and having a good king who was finally running things well, instead of Manasseh literally led them in the slaughtering of children in sacrifice. Like, you would not be surprised that that would lead to bad things in a land, right? And they're rejoicing, like that sort of thing isn't happening these days. But were they turning to the Lord in faith-filled obedience? Or to what extent did these reforms fall upon a people that had spent nearly a century practicing idolatry? They had had formed a habit of an idolatrous heart, and that doesn't go away simply with a different set of behaviors, you see. And so did they enter into a season of national and cultural pretending and performing. Here's Kenneth Barker, one of the commentators that's been helpful to us. There can be little doubt about Josiah's political and economic success, increasing an increased enthusiasm for his religious reforms. But when Jeremiah said, Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. There there was a a sort of a cultural binding together in pretense, a pretending and performing in the ways of the Lord in in order to reap some national benefit, but they didn't turn with their whole heart to the Lord. 
He may have been referring to the fact that the people were more anxious about Josiah's political accomplishments than they were in genuine experience of real religion. And I think that 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 little summary right there and reflection on Jeremiah 3.10 would be a good place for us to just sit for a little bit. What 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 is the orientation of our hopes? What would we what do we think would bring about reform in our own land? What, what pretending and performing would we be okay with as long as it brought us some form of good? But there would be no real faith and trust in the Lord. So when we see Zephaniah's prophecy of judgment upon a people who were already experiencing religious reform on a national level, we can understand that there's still a need and a call for the people to turn from their waywardness and actually trust in the Lord. So here's why I offer this extended introduction. When we hear Zephaniah's opening words, they're actually shocking given the, the cultural circumstance into which he speaks. He's prophesying during the reign of Josiah a great political, national, and religious revival is breaking out. If we were to examine the whole of the trajectory of the nation following the faithful reign of Josiah, what we would find is that the religious reforms did not take root, but rather idolatry, corruption, and turmoil would quickly return to the land. Now, just one note before we actually look at the text. Zephaniah is an interesting guy because we are given right in the first verse that Zephaniah is listed with a four-layer genealogy, which is a bit unique. You don't normally have to go back that far to introduce which Zephaniah you're talking about. I'm not sure if Zephaniah was a particularly popular name, right? (laughs) Why did they have to go back four generations to introduce who he is? Well, notice where it stops. They go back to Hezekiah. Do you remember who Hezekiah was? There is a decent chance, no guarantee, that what he's doing is he's referring to the fact that Hezekiah, the Hezekiah that he goes back to, is actually King Hezekiah. And so, essentially, Zephaniah was part of the royal court, part of the royal family, sharing an ancestor with the young king, Josiah. That would put Zephaniah as a distant cousin to the king. And this would situate Zephaniah's prophecies as both instructive for national reform. Like, he's in the position to influence reform by a a call and reminder of the justice of of God, but it also would tell us something about Zephaniah that he is heroically bold given his proximity to the royal court. They're already enacting reforms, and yet he's warning them of the judgment of God. Now, oh, let's situate ourselves in an outline just quickly. Chapter 1. And bleeding into the verses of chapter 2, we have cosmic judgment, with a a near fulfillment in judgment upon Judah and Jerusalem. But what we have described is a cosmic 
worldwide final judgment in chapter 1. Then we come to chapter 2, just a couple verses in. It begins by describing a judgment upon the nations with a near fulfillment of the judgment upon Assyria. So we have this massive worldwide judgment upon the nations with a near fulfillment that Syria, Assyria is going down. Okay, And then we have chapter 3, which is a beautiful rehearsal of the pattern that we followed throughout the whole of the Minor Prophets, the pattern of judgment, conversion, and restoration. This concludes with one of the greatest statements of God's intimate redeeming love that's found in all of the prophets. I know that we're well into the sermon, but I want to pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we are situated in this context in Zephaniah and Josiah's reign as we're situated in this word, I pray that you would speak, your spirit would be present, that you would reform us, and that you would use these words to strip away our pretending and performing and call us to genuine faith, a faith that passes through the fire because it clings to the Holy One and trusts in the enduring nature of your steadfast love and mercy. We pray that you would work this in this people this morning, we pray. Amen. Zephaniah, we're beginning in verse 2. Zephaniah goes like this. Are you ready? I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. So there you have it. All right? There's a period, and then declares the Lord, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Zephaniah begins by describing a cosmic and ultimate horizon of judgment in verse 2. And and then by the time he gets to 4, he appears to move to a more near-term horizon of judgment upon Judah and Jerusalem. This is important. I'm using that phrase, that horizon of judgment, that that the prophecies that we've seen work their way, have often a near-term horizon of fulfillment. And then as you look at that horizon, you can see just above it and just beyond it, off in the distance, that there's almost a second fulfillment of that same judgment. There is a near-term fulfillment, the fall of Judah and Jerusalem, and there is a long-term fulfillment, which is the destruction, the sweeping away of everything from the face of the earth. To my knowledge, that hasn't happened yet. Nope, (laughs) right? There is a far-term sweeping away that's taking place. And I think that one of the things that a number of the commentators point out that's so helpful is they call this cosmic decreation. Look at how it's described. It's described as utterly sweeping away. We need to hear this because this is sins, the result of sin's entrance into the world. The wages of sin is death. This is God's judgment from the, first, from the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, to our own sin today. Look at the pattern that, that Zephaniah describes. In verse 2, we have what is essentially a void being described, an utter sweeping away of everything, leaving nothing. Verse 2, the days of creation are swept away in a cosmic decreation. I will sweep away man and beast, 
the sixth day, right? I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. And then he's going to sweep away the rubble with the wicked and cut off mankind from the face of the earth. There's a, there's a, a deconstruction of the creation narrative that Zephaniah is describing. Why? Not only is judgment anti-creation, but sin is anti-creation. It's a reversal of God's purposes in creation. We, we have all that God made, and then sin says, I see everything that you've done, God, in the patterns of this world and in the speaking of your word, but on my own, I can live. I reject your way. I reject your creation. I reject your order. I have an order of my own, and I will organize the world according to my order. Friends, that's decreation, anti-creation. And judgment then comes in the form of decreation as well. The Lord undoes his work of creation. As we'll see, he brings about decreation judgment that he might again make all things new. So he makes, he gifts, he's generous and loving, and what he forms is good, and we rebel, we destroy, we decreate, he sweeps away, and he makes everything new. That he might bring about a new creation out of the old in redeemed purified perfection. So what is the ultimate end of the Lord in history? It's not beautiful creation. The ultimate end of the Lord in history is redeemed, purified by his grace, new creation. So judgment takes the form of decreation, and so it looks like the result is the same death and destruction wrought by sin and rebellion. When we look at what God does in judgment, it looks like what we do in evil. That's what it looks like. It looks like sin, and de- or it looks like death and destruction everywhere. But because judgment is in the hand of the Redeemer, the ultimate ro- result is not a void. The ultimate result is not a deserted wilderness of death, but rather, as we will see, a purified people in the the presence of the Redeemer who has wrought by judgment salvation. Now, that's a difficult word. We're going to have to spend our time in Zephaniah paying close attention to see it here. We see the cause of the judgment in verse 4. It says, I'll stretch out my hand against Judah. Against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, I'll cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. They're saying, even in the midst of all of Josiah's reforms, there is a remnant of Baal. I don't know if it's in the people's houses or not, but I do know it's in the people's hearts. I don't know what the behaviors of the religious life are like, but we know that their hearts are still subservient to Baal. The name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. The Lord's concern is for a people to trust in him. Verse 6, those who have turned back from the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. What does he want? Ask me. Seek me. Let me be your comfort and provision and guide. He wants to preserve them as they trust in him. 
What is next described beginning in verse 7 of chapter 1 is the day of the Lord. I want to take us back and would encourage you maybe in the margin of your Bible here to, to jot down Amos chapter 5 verse 18. Amos chapter 5 verse 18 and it goes like this. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall. And a serpent bit him. He thought he was safe in the day of the Lord. But it was actually a day of judgment. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Throughout the history, Israel has looked forward to the day of the Lord as a day in which God will judge his enemies. But what they fail to discern is that they themselves have become the Lord's enemies, no matter their pretending and performing and variety of religious reforms on the ground. And so the people are called to be silent before the Lord. They have no claim to make. They can't say, but, 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 but we did lots of reforms. It was really bad under Manasseh, but we cleaned up our houses. But, 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 no, be silent before the Lord. Much as in Haggai, they're called to consider their ways, to contemplate the, relig- the righteous wrath of the Lord. The day of the Lord has two horizons. It has an immediate, imminent horizon, the destruction of Judah by Babylon. Babylon is rising and Babylon is coming. You think you're safe because Assyria is gone, but your business is not to trust in the fact that Assyria is gone and Josiah is here. Your business is to trust in the Lord. Babylon's rising. Ultimate and universal is the cosmic decreation and final salvation of Israel and the nations. While there is a near-term fulfillment, there is also a cosmic destruction that is coming by which you can only be preserved by trust in the Lord. Theologian Paul House writes this, it takes the ravages of the day of the Lord to melt away the wicked segment of the chosen people and bring forth the remnant. This is what the Lord is doing. Why the day of the Lord? What's going on? What what has gone so bad? Look at verse 12 with me. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I'll punish the men who are complacent, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. They're complacent about the Lord, apathetic about the Lord. Brings clarity about the error of the people. As we've seen in the other prophets, the real problem with the people is foolish pride at the root. It's those who say in their heart, there is no God. Or if there is one, it really doesn't matter because basically I'm God. On my own, I'll live. All that really matters is the striving and machinations of of mankind with our politics and our plundering. We make our own way in the world. And if you can carve out a little bit for yourself and sort of agree to do it in some sort of semi-civil way as a society, we'll all be okay. The The day of the Lord comes because humanity believes in our sin and rebellion that we can make our own way in the world without God, and I'll tell you, one of the worst things that can happen to a people is that it would look like it's working. We make 
religious postures. We exhibit religious practices, but our true belief is that our happiness and our welfare is in our own hands. Maybe not in my hands, you know, I I know my limitations, but like we could do it together. You, You might even say we could all vote right. If we could at least get that right, we could sort of agree together as a culture that we could establish some great and safe land together. I think that's one of the ways that we can conspire together to pretend and perform that we can be safe without a trust in the Lord. And so the Lord appoints a judgment on a day. And he says, no, whatever hope, whatever vain trust, maybe it's not the vote for you at all. Maybe it's the family that you came from. Maybe it's the the way that you've made it on your own and you've managed to carve out a little space in the world for yourself. And the day of the Lord comes and he shatters our rebellious unbelief with the presence of his wrath. He interrupts our vain foolishness, our delusions. Zephaniah, as we move into chapter two, we have this little call to gather for repentance. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the degree takes effect, before the day passes away, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. Gather, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps, you hear this, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Friends, the day of the anger of the Lord, the day of the Lord is sure. He's coming. Judgment is coming upon the land. Here's the question. Might you seek the Lord? Might you seek righteousness? Might might you get yourself down underneath of anything that you think you could do to save yourself and that the righteous would be saved by faith. And perhaps, perhaps on that day, you'll be hidden when judgment comes. What a gracious gift that before Zephaniah begins to dive right into judgment in chapter 2, really beginning in in verses 3 or verses 4 and 5 and following, the call is to gather before it's too late. Seek the Lord, seek righteousness, Seek humility, and then perhaps you may be hidden because the day of the Lord is coming, but there is a means of rescue. Those who who humble themselves, take refuge, will be hidden on the day of wrath. Zephaniah continues in verses 4 through 15. We just need to briefly say that what we find in this middle chapter of Zephaniah is judgment upon the nations. It's pretty explicit, it's pretty clear, it's coming. There is a very near horizon here. Moab and Ascalon, Ammonites and the Cushites, they're all gonna be slain. They're all gonna fall under the sword of Babylon. There is a near horizon. When we get to verse 12, it says, you also, O Cushites, shall be slain by the sword. We've had this list of nations, and then we have this far-off land of Cush. And he says, yeah, the judgment's even going to come to the far-off land. And all the lands that you can name, O people of Jerusalem, the Lord's wrath 
is going there too. The judgment is coming. And then verses 8 and 9, we see that the judgment is upon officials. It's upon princes who have trusted in foreign nations, cultures, religions. It's coming upon thieves and crooks. As I look at verses 8 and 9, 8 and 9 basically look like the mafia to me. It looks like a, a people who have boasts and, and, and have built for themselves a way of being to establish themselves some sort of security. But the Lord's going to bring it down and he's going to say, no, no, that's not the way it works. And then we come to chapter 3. In chapter three, we have this outline. Some have suggested that Zephaniah is a, a sort of poetic, powerful reflection upon the prophets that came before him because he is a great summary of the way of the prophetic word. And the way of the prophetic word comes in these three steps. Judgment, conversion, I think I wrote the word conversation, and we could talk about it all we want, but it's not gonna do anything for us going to take conversion, judgment, conversion, and restoration. We can't skip the first one. We'll see why in just a moment. Verses one and two of chapter three. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled. The oppressing cities, talk about Jerusalem, that's shocking, certainly to Josiah in the midst of all of his reforms, listen, she listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. I see all the, the, the pretending and performing, but have you trusted in the Lord? Jerusalem's failure to trust in the Lord, here it is, is again a root issue. The people have failed to trust and draw near in a faith-filled obedience. Oh, there's been obedience to a variety of reforms handed down by a king and based on a newly discovered law. But friends, that's still just law and a form of legalism, which is just a pretending and performing, and this Lord can see right into their heart. He can see he doesn't, they don't trust me. They don't pursue me. And then verses three and four have a sort of enumerated failure. Verses three, her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves, that they leave nothing till morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. So we have officials, judges, prophets, and priests, and they've all failed. A picture is not of a good people and a bad leadership. These are the people who are, these leaders are the representatives of the people. Where do you get prophets? Where do you get officials and judges? Well, they come from the people. And these are just the right kind of leaders for just the right kind of non-faith-filled people. They're fitting examples of the faithlessness of the people themselves. The call throughout the prophets is to some remnant among this people who are getting leaders who are just like them. The call is some remnant among the people cry out to the Lord be saved. Will someone trust in the Lord? Even in the midst of judgment that's coming upon a nation and its leaders, will you trust in the Lord? And verse 5 says, the Lord is within her, is righteous. He does know 
injustice. I mean, you've got officials and judges and prophets and priests, but the Lord is righteous. The leaders have failed, but the Lord, the true ruler of the people, has not failed. And he hasn't stopped. He hasn't disappeared. You you don't say of the Lord, he won't do good, and he won't do ill. He's not even here. Now the Lord says, "I, I am here, and I'm righteous, and the day of the Lord is coming. And he begins to, in verses 6 and 7, pronounce judgment upon nations. What follows again is a pronouncement of judgment upon the rebellion, not only of Judah, but all the nations that surrounds her. So that we come to then, in verse 8, a call, Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for the day of the Lord. What's the call to anyone who would heed Zephaniah's words? Right? You're receiving this prophecy. It comes to your town, and you're listening to the prophet Zephaniah. What do you hear him say? What are you supposed to do? Okay, I hear it. It's bad. Day of the Lord's coming. I'm not a person of faith. What do I do? What do I do? And the word is, wait for me. Wait for me. Judah has recently been under the thumb of Assyria. Judah is going to come under the judgment of God by Babylon. What is the business of the faithful? Wait upon the Lord. And he is behind the judgment. He who is behind the judgment will also be behind your salvation. Wait upon. It's never not been the instruction. It is at the center of every call to the people. Wait upon the Lord. And here's what we have among a few, a small number, a remnant. We have a conversion. I'm going to read all of verses 9 through 13. Look at it with me. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. You remember how far the judgment went? That's how far the redemption's gonna go. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. I saw it, I saw it. But you won't be put to shame for then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. I'm going to change you. I'm gonna purify you. I'm gonna change what is you. But I'll leave in your midst the people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no just injustice. Speak no lies. There shall be there, there shall there be found in their mouth, a, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. What, what the Lord is describing is judgment is coming, but you wait for me, and I am going to do a new thing among a people, a purifying thing. In fact, by the judgment, I am doing the purifying thing. What follows is the effect of God's purifying judgment. Verse 9 is the effect of God's judgment upon the people. 
He will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech all the way to Cush. And so, Zephaniah leads us where the Lord is going. In all of these books, these 12 minor prophets, all about judgment, what he's doing is restoration. What he's doing is redemption. What Zephaniah presents here in this chapter stands as one of the greatest reversals in all of Scripture. I think it's one of the most powerful statements that we could have. It stands along Ephesians 2, 4, and its statement, but God, right? You are dead in sins and trespasses. You all once walked. You all were perishing in the way of the world. You were following the prince of the power of the air, period. Could you imagine if that's all there is to say in Ephesians chapter 2? And friends, if it's just us, if it's just you and me making our way in this world, that's all there is to Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, when? Because of the great love with which he decided to start loving us. No, no, no. And this is transformative, friends. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The commandment of verse 14 is a commandment to sing aloud and to shout aloud. Why? Why sing and why shout? Look at verse 17 with me. The Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Why do you have a people who see judgment going down on Assyria, judgment coming upon them by Babylon. That's going to happen. The day of the Lord is sure and it's coming. Why do that people get to sing? Because the Lord's singing. He has a song. What's the content of his song? Exultation over you. Love over you. Rejoicing and gladness. A quieting your raging fear-filled, anxiety-induced soul with his love. There's a a phrase that has become very quickly mind-blowing to me. It's it's a a phrase by Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly. He says this, In his justice, God is... In his justice, God is exacting. I mean, exacting, like, I think scalpel. Why? Well, because they're called exacto knives, right? <laughs> exacting, precise, right? You get down close with a razor blade. In his justice, he carves exactly where it needs to carve. And it, according to Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 2, it says, utterly sweeping everything away. It turns out judgment 
is, is rich and full, and it's coming, and it's perfect, and it's executed by design. But in his mercy, God is overflowing. Why is God's justice exacting? Precise, but full. Because he's doing something in judgment that is surgically precise, that only the sovereign of the universe could accomplish. What the Lord is doing in judgment is he is sweeping away sin and idolatry and bringing forth a purified people. We've seen this pattern for 11 weeks now. James Hamilton puts it this way. God's glory, that's what it's all about. God's glory in salvation. That's where he's going is to salvation. How does he do it? He uses the scalpel, the exactness of his judgment. Why does he do it? Now, that's not answered. Not in that little thing by James Hamilton. And I think it's something that, honestly, I think I fail to say enough. Why is he doing it? Love. That's why. Why does the Lord send judgment? Why does the Lord exact justice? Did he start being a God who loved us when he stopped doing judgment? Do you see? But God... But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, and his justice was sure upon our sin, made us alive together with Christ. Where does justice show up in its fullest sweeping scope? Friends, that is the cross of Jesus Christ. The full measure of the wrath of God falls with surgical precision upon Jesus Christ for every part of my sin and unbelief. Exacting. You know what that tells me? There is, therefore, because he's... He's exactingly precise with his judgment of, of, of my sin upon the Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And all of a sudden that little poetic word perhaps becomes for sure. For sure. For those who are hidden in Christ. And the judgment has already taken its perfect, the, the perfect shape and outline, the shadow that's been cast by my sin, surgically exercised on the Christ. And I've been hidden in him. And he did it because he loved me. Judgment on the Christ because he set his love on me so that I can be purified. And there can be a people stretching to nations unnamed that, yes, his judgment has gone there. Word of his judgment needs to go there in the proclamation of the gospel. Word of his judgment. And there will be a people who, by faith, are purified. That's, friends, 
That's the story of the prophets. They saw it dimly and far off. We've seen it with its exacting precision recorded for us in the pages of the scriptures. We see it. Do you rejoice? Do you know your sin and the exacting precision of his mercy and grace for you? And do you see that while his judgment was precise, his grace is overflowing? Man, he could have said, see, I did it. Perfect. Nailed it. Perfect justice for all of your sinfulness. See, look at Jesus. He's dead for you. That's not what he does. Verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will, you see, grace overflowing. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Why do we sing? Because we're just joining the song of heaven. This is why we sing. This is why we believe. This is our encouragement and hope. The Lord loves you. Heavenly Father, when I read your word, I believe you. I believe you that everything is swept away by your judgment. Sure. But Lord, your, your word has, has revealed to us there is but one thing that passes through the fire. Trust in God. And Lord, as we pass through, we are refined. And you burn off even our chaff, even our sin and rebellion, and even the elements that remain of our unbelief. You're burning away, not just in some far-off horizon, but in a very near horizon today. Work your judgment. Work your discipline. Because we know that for us, who are hidden in Christ, there's no condemnation in it. There's no anger that remains for us. There is only purifying grace that will lead to pure speech that can join in the song of heaven. I pray that you would do this for your people this morning. Teach us a song. Teach us how to sing about redemption and find refuge there in the trials of this life, not the building of our own little bulwarks, our own little walls and precipices that we would trust in the Lord in this season as you bring us to the next. Thank you, Lord. We trust in you in the name of Jesus. Amen.